You're listening to episode 43 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast and subscribe to my newsletter, check this episode's notes. You can rate and leave a review of the show using your favorite podcast app. Food studies by large, and food history in particular, articulate or bring together observation and analysis that make us aware of how intricately related are all aspects of our lives as individuals and civilizations to the way we produce and consume food. Honestly, food rules our lives. In case you just discovered this podcast, well, let me tell you that there are more than 40 episodes available in which I've explored and analyzed many aspects of Mexican food and related gastronomic traditions. But I have also put special care into expanding the way in which we understand food much more broadly. And true to that, today's episode features an interview with the renowned food historian, TEDx speaker, cook, professor, vlogger, that is video blogger, and part-time wine, cheese and bread maker, Ken Albala, a distinguished member of the Department of History of the University of the Pacific in California in the US of A. I became very familiar with Ken's work a few years ago after taking his amazing course on food, a cultural culinary history, and after reading several of his award-winning books, including Three World Cuisines, Italian, Mexican, and Chinese, which incidentally was the 2012 winner of the Government World Cookbook Awards for Best Foreign Cuisine Book in the World. Now let me tell you a little bit more about Professor Albala. He has a bachelor's degree in modern European studies from the George Washington University, a master's in Tudor and Stuart England from Yale and a PhD in Renaissance history from Columbia University. And he has published, edited and co-authored mm, around 24 books and counting. When I was preparing for this interview, the outline began with a very ambitious set of deep questions about food waste, meaning how we produce, transform and consume foods, and the importance of being, well, in Ken Albala's words, less esoteric about food and much more hands-on. But during the recording, it actually soon became very clear that Ken's honest and witty input continuously zoomed in and out of an enormous range of fascinating angles, which ended up being, well, pretty much a personalized lecture for the benefit of all of you, the amazing audience of this show. It was an enormous privilege to have one of the most respected, knowledgeable and engaging food historians. Ken gave poignant and thought-provoking opinions and ended on a really high note, urging us to look beyond our self-imposed cultural barriers and stereotypes and giving in to the pleasure of exploring the world and cultures through food. I hope you enjoy this episode.
at the core of Professor Abala's work as public speaker, lecturer and author. It is to raise questions about the conditions of our food system, which at the present seems to be the result of a broken-down paradigm in which we are crushing our environment, our economy and social equality. So I asked, how did we reach this point? And if we have ourselves to blame for this, along with the inefficiencies in our habits and diets? Here's what he said about that. Yeah, well, you've just um, touched on dozens of different subjects, <laughs> so I could speak for several hours on this if you started me. I think, you know, the reason that our food supply has turned out the way it has and why corporations have taken over is we think of food as a business, not as a human need or a necessity or a means of social interaction and communication. You know, because there are shareholders, that's the first directive of most food businesses. And that starts from the farming all the way through the, the uh, processing and the distribution and the marketing and the, you know, to cooking. And I think everyone who's involved in this uh, sort of industrial food model is there to make a profit. And that's first and foremost. And they make more, the more they can get us to eat, the more money they make. It's not like they sit down and say, let's break the social bonds that have kept people together. And let's, you know, give them junk food, because that way we'll, we'll ruin their lives. It's not a conscious thing. It's it's really just, you know, the way that capitalism kind of is organized. Um, and, and I would say the past, you know, 200 years or so has been geared toward uh, profit making and people haven't really realized what, what's going on or how they, how this affected their lives. You know, this has only been intensified in the past 50 years when companies have gotten very, very good at making food very convenient, having it anywhere you want it, any way you like it. And that's, of course, for affluent nations, not for everyone on, on Earth. And they've also gotten very good at exploiting the labor and the resources of people around the world so that they provide this very cheap, abundant food for uh, the more affluent countries. You know, it's caused poverty in many places in the world, and it's caused uh, a lot of, well, hyperalimentation. You know, I mean, the ability to eat more than you need, not realizing that in taking away basic human connection through food, that I don't just mean, you know, um, people cooking for each other in, in the kitchen and cooking for your family. I mean, like the connection you might have from going to the person who sells you the food and having a, a connection between the consumer and the producer. And that, that's one major thing that's severed. Um, and I think also, you know, when, when a family sits down and, and orders out just because it's there and because it's convenient, I think they're losing out on the pleasure that comes from cooking for people and serving them and has been having nothing to do with money at all. No, no profit involved. And I think we're missing out on a lot in life. And just to give you an example, in the United States, the, um, you know, U.S. Uh, survey of time spent on various activities found that it's, I think it's something like 23 minutes the average person spends in cooking and cleaning up um, per day. And they spend about two hours watching TV. So when people tell me, oh, I don't have time because I'm so busy and this and that and that, it's like, well, no, it's not that you don't have the time. You, you make other things a priority and i understand that but i think you know you should make food a priority not just for the sake of health most importantly it's having this connection of the people you uh feed um and the and your family or friends or whoever whoever that might, might be or even just yourself if, if that happens to be it i think there's probably very few things that can be time better spent <laughs> than actually preparing food by yourself is what i mean 
The notion that cooking made us human is a phrase that conveys a very deep meaning. And in case you wondered, what's so special about food studies? And is it worth the trouble of learning about it? Well, Ken provides a very compelling argument in praise of the pertinence of food studies. You know, there's a theory that uh, cooking actually made us human, you know, pro put forward evolution. Um, you know, while that's a very compelling idea, there's not a whole lot of archaeological evidence for it. I mean, just because there, there's not remains that they would suggest that. But uh, the idea is that our brain capacity only became possible when, you know, increased calories from cooking food, um, you know, allowed our bodies to do other things. But I think, you know, what you're pointing at is that in human civilization, not just in evolution, that our advances in food are kind of the groundwork for every other advance. When you think of almost anything, really, that's a technological advance, if you think of what spurred that on, it really usually is food production or transportation or processing, you know, when you think of like steam engines, well, yeah, okay, they went immediately into railroads, but why? Well, it was to move food around, right? I mean, they were they were moving sides of beef in, in cattle cars, and they were using, you know, pressure cookers to can food eventually and to pasteurize it. And, and so I think food is at the center of human activity, but I think that, that it's also a catalyst for almost everything, you know, uh, that happens. If you think of why people went exploring around the world, and conquering other people. Well, you know, Columbus was looking for spices. He wasn't trying to discover anything. He was trying to get to China. And if you think of why there are colonial empires around the world, well, they were basically there to grow sugar, tropical products, and, and things that, you know, obviously caused a lot of um, hardship and slavery for, for some people. And, you know, so other people could have sugar in their tea, basically. But you, know, you cannot understand history unless you start with food, I think. You know, obviously, when I teach uh, history courses, I think, you know, what really makes things tick is how people get fed. It's it's not the wars and the kings and the big political movements and things. Those are an effect of, of, of getting food, not, not its cause. Like me, you may have noticed that the big trends in food production and even home cooking change between being technologically driven, meaning with lots of gadgets and very high-tech processes, and then it swings to having natural, crafty and very hands-on methods. And even Professor Albala's work is a very accurate reflection of this phenomena, as he commented on it. You know, to address that, I, I think there are periods in history that are very much traditional and that swings back and forth. And I think the period we're in, we've been in lately has been very craft oriented. Look, look at the way beer has been going lately. And I think we're about to swing back toward a, a high tech kind of uh, period. Um, just think of what they're doing with, you know, impossible burgers and, um, and, and the technology is just, just becoming acceptable and interesting again. Uh, and I think it will be um, in coming years. Um, just, just to give you an example, in periods that are very technologically driven, usually Jello becomes very popular. <laughs> you know, it's because it's such a weird thing. Think of the 50s, post-war, you know, enthusiasm with faith in science and eat your vitamins and all that. I think it's coming back now. And I have to say, I've spent the past week making uh, various types of Jello <laughs> for fun. I've been playing around with cocktails in um, in Jello shots, and I think I might do a book on this just because it looks like fun. So I. I think that's that's a signal that we're beginning to uh, swing back uh, toward a, a high-tech 
aesthetic. You know, the, the Lost Art of Real Cooking I did with a friend, Rosanna Nofziger. We, we met sort of accidentally and found this shared interest in making cheese ourselves and curing meat and baking sourdough bread long before this was ever popular, you know, among hipsters. And then the world sort of caught up <laughs> with us. You know, that was a decade ago. And since then, I'm really far more technologically driven. Like, like this last book that I did on noodle soup, I started playing with machines and doing all, all sorts of strange experiments with chemistry and, and things like that. I don't know. I, I don't know whether I've grown out of my, my antipathy toward, toward science or and technology or what, but um, I don't know. That's, that's just the direction my work has been going lately. Now, given the fact that Professor Ken Albala has had such a successful academic career and is a very prolific author, he actually has used that platform to go well beyond the classroom and has led by example socializing knowledge by making it accessible to society at large. So I actually threw some firecrackers of questions about how universities were once powerhouses of ideas, but have increasingly become more and more detached from being actors of social change and now becoming increasingly obsolete and isolated. Not only he shared my concern and even frustration about this, he also made it very clear that the traditional teaching-learning paradigm that sets students and professors in a classroom really has to change, including even the way we produce learning materials, from interactive books to even podcasting. Academia is going through an enormous, enormous growing pains right now. Um, and this happens every 50 years or so. Uh, universities start rethinking what it is they have to do. And right now it's driven by profit. I mean, that's, that's the only reason it's happening. There was no philosophical reason that they should start cutting um, humanities and social sciences and the liberal arts. And, and just in my own university, you know, I've seen no, no more classics here. There's no, you know, things like religious studies. The history department has shrunk. But how, what does this all have to do with food is that, well, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, where I started my career was in very kind of historical research in old texts. You know, how I got from there to playing with jello shots in my kitchen, you know, very hands on. I mean, it's partly just me because I got tired of doing that kind of stuff. And I prefer things that are more, well, let's just call it activism. You know, I want people to get in their kitchens and cook. So if I teach them ways to have fun doing that, then I'm serving some social function. And I don't know whether food studies is going that direction in general. But but I think if you if I look at my colleagues who are academics working on food, a lot of them really have turned toward, if not hands on, they're looking more at like who's making the food, who's growing it, who's eating it and who's not. Very, very much socially conscious of things rather than just, you know, let's look at food and literature or the arts or, you know, things that are more esoteric, I think. Uh, well, I agree with you, obviously. I think, you know, every scholar should have some kind of public outlet. If we're only talking to our colleagues, then we're not, not really serving any function. But I think another thing that, that's connected to this, um, and I've been thinking about this very, very seriously lately, technology is really changing to such an extent that I think books are actually becoming obsolete. I mean, you know, I mean people will still like them and they will still read them. But if you look at the way most people get their information now, they do not open up books and read them. They're looking at videos, listening to podcasts, looking at blogs. And it's not necessarily 
necessarily short bits of information. Sometimes it's very long ones. But I think the media are changing so rapidly. I mean, in food publishing, let's let's talk about cookbooks specifically. The, the publishing houses are so frightened that they will only publish people who have a TV show or, uh, you know, a million followers. So in, in a way, the kind of cookbooks that I've done would be impossible to sell now. They need to have a big name and they need, you know, sell a whole lot of them. So I think videos are actually a, or are a much better way to learn uh, how to cook. And the only problem with that is that when you put stuff on TV, it shoots toward the lowest common denominator and it's and beginners, basically. Let's make sure this person knows how to boil water. And recipes are written the same way now, obviously. They're, if you have even the tiniest skill set, recipes written today are boring as hell. So don't assume any knowledge. So I think if we were to have an interactive kind of cookbook that was like a game that could know your skill sets, know your equipment, know what you have in the fridge, know your aversions and your, you know, uh, allergies and whatever you like and don't like, and then take you into a, a learning exercise so that if I go in there, it'll give me a different set of directions than someone who doesn't really, that's a complete beginner, then that would be, I think, a far more effective way to teach. And of course, that's what, the way we all teaching happens, right? Why doesn't a cookbook work the same way, <laughs> right? I mean, teaching cooking should happen exactly like that. I don't know. You know, the other phenomenon that, that's really interesting to me is, is people just don't have the patience to read things online anymore. But podcasting has become really in and interesting. But like, it seems sort of silly that I'm still wedded to this idea that I need a book because that's a, you know, a, a milestone or some kind of accomplishment when, when actually a podcast might make a lot more sense. Well, here's the weird thing is I went out and bought half a dozen books that I was really interested in reading. And a few of them, I said, well, why don't I just listen to these? And so I put it on and I would say I've listened to maybe, I don't know, half a dozen books in the past few months. And it's really pleasant. It's just nice. You, you know, you don't I don't have to have my glasses on. I, I can just sit and do something else and chill out and, and listen. We will return with the show after this short break. Visiting a Mexican market is like stepping into a universe of vibrant colors, smells, foods, and traditions. They are the beating heart of our communities and the nation's culinary powerhouses. And my new book celebrates these prodigious places and their delicious food. Mexican Market Food is a book for anyone who enjoys the warmth of chiles and the addictive taste of guacamole, but also wants to enter a new dimension of Mexican food, one that will take you straight into the history and present of one of the world's most celebrated cuisines. As a passionate food history writer, cook and storyteller, I take you on a life-changing journey and celebrate together the magic and food of Mexico's markets with dozens of delicious traditional recipes that will bring you closer to the real Mexico by discovering the stories and flavors all in a single proverbial basket. Go to pastachipotle.com for slash book and get your copy of Mexican Market Food and let's celebrate together the joy of traditional Mexican cooking. Part of my own work requires me to stay informed, listen and read what is being said and discussed about food. So I shared with Ken some thoughts about an interview I listened over the BBC with Klaus Meyer and the new food revolutions. 
Klaus Meyer is the founder and co-owner of the Danish restaurant Noma, who started the new Nordic cuisine movement. It's utterly fascinating, and there will be more information about it on this episode's special blog post. Ken shared some very interesting points about tradition, evolution, and revolution in gastronomy. I heard him on a podcast very recently, and it got me thinking. You know, in some ways, we want to preserve our traditions, right? I mean, there are things that our ancestors have done for a long, long time: culinary traditions, specific foods, recipes, ways of eating. And of course, that was broken in the past generation because a lot of people moved around. And if I think of the way my grandparents ate, my father's parents grew up in Greece and Turkey, and they ate very differently in the you know course of the 20th century. Those foodways are lost completely. I don't have my grandmother's recipes. I have vague idea how they were made, and and I eat completely differently. And in some respects, that's not a bad thing. Uh, my grandmother probably would never have thought in a million years of cooking a Korean dish. So I think in some respects we have lost many traditional foodways and places that were tied to specific countries or you know topography and whatever. And it's partly because we're mobile, mobile you know people. We move around, but we also interact with so many different cultures that we are becoming, in terms of food, poly ethnic. And that's a fine thing. You know, that's good. So, so you know, when I'm cooking any given night, I could be anywhere in the world. The problem with that, you know, as you know, the big topic has been, well, who's allowed to cook what and who's allowed to profit from it? And there, there's just been such incredible stupidity on the part of food, you know, investors opening a kind of restaurant with mock Chinese dishes and stuff and and then coming and saying, well, we're going to show you what's really authentic. And, you know, so so I think that kind of insensitivity is just asinine. But on the other hand, when you're talking about what people do in their own homes, cook everything, you know, borrow recipes. This is what makes food evolve is that people do take new ingredients, do take new recipes and techniques and whatever, make mishmash of, of various cultures. And that's what makes cooking evolve, right? I mean, it'd be kind of be like if, if an Italian person 500 years ago said, we're not eating that tomato. That's a that's a Mexican thing. How dare you allow that tomato in our cuisine? You know, that's that's hybrid. That's a that's fusion. How, how dare you do that? Well, of course they did. They're going to do it anyway. And, and this is going to happen whether people like it or not. You're going to have, you know, cuisines mixing in all sorts of fascinating ways. And what's wrong with that? We're creating new traditions, right? I mean, traditions are all invented anyway. And, and it's like if you stop a cuisine in its tracks and say, this is the way it's done and this is the correct way. Well, what are you doing? You're killing it. You're, it's a kind of like language. It has to evolve. And this is coming from a historian. I'm a little suspicious when people say we have to maintain traditions. We can't lose this and that because, well, what do you mean? You you want to maintain, you know, the way people ate 100 years ago? I, I don't. Inevitably, we touched on the subject of the cross-cultural food between Mexico and the USA and how, when it comes to the gastronomic offer, there is much more than just poor American interpretations of it, but is the result of an old, complex and continuously changing set of relationships. Ken also raised the issue of the very fine line between cultural appropriation and culinary admiration that deserves more analysis than just a quick condemnation, especially considering the benefits of having food as a gateway to explore other people's culture. 
I was listening to something the other day that made me think. Um, someone said, well, you know, obviously this was Mexico once the United States took it over and then it became the United States after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. But on the other hand, actually, no, it wasn't Mexico that long. It was Mexico from the point of independence, 1821, until the 18, you know, 40s. For, for 20 years, it was Mexico. That This was Spain. Well, there's, there's a cu- couple of related things I think are... Um, at play here. One is that Mexican food has evolved in the United States being its own thing. Um, actually, several different cuisines. What was sort of Sonoran or Norteño Tex-Mex is different from Mexican food in California. And it has partly to do with the places that the people emigrated from, partly to do with how that cuisine evolved in the United States to be something different. So weirdly, if you were to go into a standard Mexican restaurant in the United States, you'd have a standard set of recipes which might not even be familiar to people in Mexico because they're, they're they're really their own strange thing. I mean, you there's always um, frijoles refritos, some kind of chimichanga or burrito, or they're not as common. Um, elsewhere. So so we have a, a very distinct cuisine. It's not better or worse than Mexican. It's just different. It's its own thing. In fact, it's a variety of Mexican cuisine. But what has happened, I think, which is most interesting, is that there's continues to be immigrants and there are people who introduce very particular regional cuisines or, or things that are more like what people eat in Mexico. You know, there's this ongoing battle about what is authentic. And, and I think we keep kind of upping the game in the United States but by people who are reintroducing um, what they claim is greater authenticity or claims to be, you know, what is cooked in uh, Mexico. Um, You probably also know Diana Kennedy, who's, you know, knows her stuff. She's hard as nails. But does she or does she not have a right to be the ambassador of, of, you know, Oaxacan cuisine to the United States? I don't know. I mean, that's it's a it's a very difficult question to, to, to have a pat answer, because part of you wants to say, why shouldn't anyone cook whatever they like and do what they like and, you know, cook what they what they can. And the reason really is that those people have have an easier time getting loans, opening restaurants. They have the publicity. They have, you know, an easier time than someone of Mexican descent. If they wanted to open a, a restaurant brick and mortar, it's just going to be more difficult for them. And so they, it's usually taco trucks or it's something, you know, that's uh, easier as a startup. So, so I think there is definitely a, a lack of equity in not just the representation of who's doing the cooking, but in terms of who owns the restaurants and who's running them. Um, you know, and and I think for the majority of people in the United States, their prime exposure to Mexican food food has been either Taco Bell or it's been a chain. It's not great Mexican food or Mexican-American food at all. You can eat a cuisine of a people and not like that people. I mean, current president, when they asked him, you know, about what he thought of Mexicans, he he was eating a big fried taco shell with a salad in it and saying, look, I love Mexicans. Look what I'm eating. It was so incredibly stupid because it was apparent to everyone that the two have nothing to do with each other. You can eat a food and know nothing about it. On the other hand, for people who are genuinely interested in learning about people, food is a great way to do it. I think you really can learn a lot about about a culture. I mean, I mean, let, let me give you a concrete example. Last week, I tried this fufu, which is made out of a cocoa yam, which is traditionally pounded. And I kind of just thought, I want to know what this is like. And I saw it. And I have to say, I don't have a deep understanding of that culture as a result of that. But I know a little bit more. I, I kind of understand what it's like to 
physically produce this dish. And I think the same is true about the past. If I want to learn about something that was cooked 500 years ago, I can read the recipe. I can tell you who, you know, some things about the social structure and the gender role and the trade patterns and God knows what. But unless I actually cook it and taste it, I don't have that kind of deep physical insight into what did it take to cook that recipe? How are these ingredients processed? It gives you um, a sense of what those people's experience was like that can't be put into words. It's a direct physical experience, which I think is in a sense more more valuable. Whether you're talking about the past or talking about the present or you're talking about a culture you don't know, um, I would encourage people to just give it a shot. Do as best as you can. Don't take shortcuts. Don't bastardize it. Don't substitute too many ingredients. But if you can come close, I think that that's got to be a good thing. To close the interview, I asked Ken some questions about his most recent books, and he really ended up on a high note explaining why is it so important for him to get people cooking and allowing themselves to just mess around in the kitchen and enjoy the process. Honestly, apart from the fact that, that it may be healthier, may be better for the environment because you're not eating as much things that are pre-processed, you might make choices that are going to be better for the animals themselves. Apart from all that, let's take it from a completely and utterly selfish perspective. It's fun. <laughs> it's just absolutely. And everyone has to eat. So you might as well do it well. Uh, and I think time that you spend in the kitchen is the best time you can possibly spend, obviously eating also and sharing the food. But I think that as long as it's something you have to do, and, and, I, and I would not say that food is unique in this respect among human activities. I think humans have to tell stories. This is part of our DNA. It's why we survived. I think humans have to make music in some fashion and move around and dance. These are these are things that every culture has and every person should do. And I think for all of these forms of art, doing is far more valuable than passively absorbing. And I think it's the same thing with food, is that you get more out of it when you uh, have an active engagement with your ingredients. You know how they work in, in a pan or in your oven. You know what? If you ruin dinner one night, so what? You'll learn from that experience. You, you figured it out and, it, and it's not a big deal. Um, and I think, I think to cook is empowering. It gives you the ability to do what you want, the way you like your food, whatever calories you want to take in, whatever ingredients you want to have. And, and I think people should just do it. Yeah. And you know, what's really funny is also just to, you know, because I cook a lot and uh, I've written a lot about it. People are always anxious about having me over for dinner because they think I'm going to be highly critical or I'm going to be judgmental about what they're doing. But the thing that, that is really funny that I, someone pointed this out to me the other day is that most people, when they have company over, they make something they are they know is going to work that they've made many times and it's going to be a safe bet. I always do exactly the opposite. I try something out that I have no idea if it's going to work when I have company <laughs> just because I have a I have a captive audience. Why shouldn't I do what's fun? The stuff that I cook every day, then I'll, you know, I don't follow a recipe, but I'll, you know, if my son wants hamburgers, I'm going to make them exactly the way he likes it by rote, every, you know, maybe once a week. And then, then I'm not experimenting because that's the really critical audience. But if people are over, forget it. I'm going to try something new. And, and if it doesn't work, so what? <laughs> Yeah, if you want to um, contact me, uh, send me an email. That's <laughs> the easiest way. My email is easily found. Just Google my name and you'll get my email. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a couple of different groups there. Um, I've got one fermentation group called the Cult of Pre-Pasturian Food Preservation, which is about fermentation. Um, I run a couple of other groups uh, related to publishing and things like that. I'm on Instagram. Um, I don't know. I've got a blog called McCann Albala's Food Rant. 
Oh, yeah. And the um, Great Courses video that I did, which is a food, a cultural culinary history, you can get pretty much on any podcast or um, Stitcher, Audible or iTunes. And I'll be filming another one this summer on historic cooking, which should be out early 2020, I think. If this interview has provoked your curiosity and you want to find out more about Ken's work and culinary experiments, blogging and videos, check this episode's notes on your podcast app for all the links mentioned during today's show. There is also an extended blog post on Pasachipotle.com where you can read more about that. Yeah, well, my, my, the project that I've been working on, strangely enough, is not really about food. It's about walking. And I got in the habit of walking with wine, with a you know glass of wine and a little bit of thing. And it's kind of pleasant. But I usually do about eight to 10 miles a day. And I've been doing that for about two years. I stopped counting when I hit 5,000 miles. But it's um, a lot of interesting places around the world, sometimes hikes, sometimes urban walk, um, you know, London. And I did Mexico City last fall. And I think um, I don't know what to do with it. I, it may be a podcast. So if you see a podcast called Walk with wine and you'll know where it's coming from. <laughs> Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. I want to thank Professor Ken Albala for being so generous, honest, and an utterly fun and delightful guest. The next episode of the show will feature Mexican desserts and ice cream expert, chef, businesswoman and owner of America's favorite donut shop, Fanny Gerson, with whom I will talk about the sweetest side of Mexico's gastronomy and the culinary influences that inspire her work. Connect with me on social media, find the links on this episode's notes and if you want to drop me a line, send it to hello at pasachipotle.com. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time.